You're listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. Here are your hosts, Ben and Garth. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I am here with Garth Reynolds, and we are here to bring you the next episode of Illinois Farm Talk by the Illinois Pharmacists Association. It's been a while since we've had an episode out, so we'd like to reintroduce ourselves. I'm Ben Calcaterra. I'm Garth Reynolds. And we are here to talk about the Illinois Pharmacists Association, what we do, how we do it, what you need to know, and why you should come join us, why it's important to the profession, to the state of Illinois, to serve our patients correctly, because we can bring all the pharmacists together. We are the voice for pharmacy in Illinois. In this episode, we'll get an update on how spring session went at the Capitol, DEA 222 form update, the Pharmacist Workplace and Wellbeing Reporting Portal, and finally, we'll have a brief word about Conference 2021. And yes, we are very excited. It's about to happen. By the time you hear this episode, it will already have happened, but it will be in person, and we are so excited to see everybody's face, to come together and learn together. So anyhow, let's get started with this. Hello, Garth. Hello, Ben. So spring session 2021, the legislative session the last couple of years have been very crazy because of COVID. Uh, you know, they shut down the Capitol for us to walk in and talk with our legislators. It's been difficult having sessions. Committee hearings were virtual instead of in-person, which was a whole new dynamic. Uh, it, it just changed the way we did things. It changed the way... Uh, the, the, the legislative bodies were able to hear bills and, and, and have their, their normal uh, routine. It was all changed up. So, so things that we expected to see happen didn't get happen. They, did, they, they got pushed off. They got postponed. Let's go over that. Let's just run down what happened, how it went. What do you say, Garth? How was spring session 2021? There were definitely some challenges to the spring session for 2021, but with some of the new workarounds with having virtual committees, we were able to bring in a lot of um, um, national experts on some of our legislation that we may not have been able to do so um, if we were in traditional live committee hearings, specifically around our PBM bill. So our um, the legislators got to hear from some of the nation's top experts, not only within committee hearings, but also in some of the behind-the-scenes um, stakeholder meetings as well. So we were able to uh, connect in people that we more than likely would not have been able to bring in at least as many times as we had been able to in the past. But there were definite challenges with the Capitol being closed for the entire session and not being able to have some of the more traditional um, advocacy conversations that we normally have and just the access to our senators, our representatives and their staff as we normally would. So there were some definite challenges, but the the General Assembly did continue to um, actually um, pass a significant number of bills, well over 600 bills they sent to the governor. We were monitoring well over 333, excuse me, 330 of those bills during that time. 63 of those bills actually um, got forwarded on to the governor. And then none of these bills that we opposed um, got, got passed out of the General Assembly and sent to the governor. So for there were a lot of successes for us this year. Now, that doesn't mean we got everything accomplished. You never get all of your agenda items accomplished. 
There are many things that we're continuing to work on, and most and most importantly is our PBM legislation. Um, we did get to have numerous um, subject matter hearings on our bill, so we our voice got clearly heard in the Illinois Senate Insurance Committee. And um, we did bring in some national experts, not only from NCPA, but also um, Scott Pace, um, who is a former um, CEO of the Arkansas Pharmacists Association, and Vicki Cunningham, who is a former director of Medicaid um, for the, the state of West Virginia, and being able to help bring their expertise of what they've seen actually happen with PBM reform legislation. So we'll be continuing to advocate for those as we go forward in the coming months. And um, not only in addition to Senate Bill 2008, um, but we've also looking at um, having an audit resolution come forward <clears throat> to address and ask the state to, to look at an audit of the prescription side of managed Medicaid. If you recall, for some of our members and listeners may recall, that we had a medical um, medi- managed Medicaid audit that was done during the pi- of the pilot stage of the program back in 2007. And that showed um, that there was significant mismanagement back then. And um, I think as we'll talk later on in, in this episode, there are some reasons why we need to come back um, and look at this issue again. But I do want to highlight some of our successes this year. I'm not going to go into all of them um, because that would be basically going through our entire law review, which you'll hear at the conference next weekend. Um, But I do want to highlight just a couple. And um, first off was House Bill 119. Um, Illinois is going to become um, one of um, a, a few states in the Midwest that will now allow for the public to be able to... Um, take un, unused medications, specifically if it's still in sealed packages, um, in, in unit of use packages back to a pharmacy or other um, redepository um, center and be able to have those medications um, examined and then have them redispensed back out to people of need. And I, th- this has worked very well. Um, one of our, actually our neighbors, Iowa, has run a program very similar, which was where we modeled the legislation on and has had great success with the program. Um, I think that one of the items that is going to be helped examined out of this type of a program will actually be able to utilize a lot of the mail order waste um, that continues to be sent to patients unnecessarily and continue to um, they continue to charge for that. So a lot of that waste that usually goes into um, medication disposals will, can now actually get to people who actually need it instead of the monies being wasted, um, as we're seeing now. And um, we're hopefully going to be able to show um, where medications have come from from their uh, donation sources. So we'll, we'll be able to, to exhibit how much of this is actually coming from mail-order waste. Now, this is only sealed packages, correct? This isn't yes. loose tablets in a vial. No, not at this point. We're really wanting to keep it as unused packages, um, and we're even refrigerated items that we're even taking a look at, too. But there are some medications, like if they're under a RIMS program or if they're a controlled um, substance, they're not uh, eligible for the program at this time, at least in these early stages. Now, does a pharmacist have to sign up for this program, or is every pharmacy going to be available to participate? Every pharmacy is going to be available to participate, and we hope pharmacies will, because I think, you know, I've been um, impressed with the number of pharmacies that um, do have disposal units in their pharmacies, and hopefully we can have those education steps in our communities before to think about 
well, I was going to dispose of this, but does it meet qualifications so I can get it to someone who actually can use it today? Next couple bills I really want to go over really quickly are um, House Bill uh, 739 and House Bill um, 1745. Both of these were introduced by Majority Leader Greg Harris. And most of you may remember um, Leader Harris as the uh, House sponsor for our PBM legislation back in 2019. And um, he continues to work on managed care and PBM reform and, um, and, and continues to be a great advocate for patients and for pharmacy. And the two pieces of legislation that he's put forward this year, one is on um, prior authorization reform, and also looking at cost-sharing reform and out-of-pocket expense specifically for patients um, with specialty medications. And so he's continuing to try to find ways of making medication cheaper and more affordable for patients and more accessible. Um, so we we're really applaud Leader Harris for continuing to lead in these efforts. Then going on to Senate Bill 2172. 2172 was a bill that we moved late in session, and um, it was one where we needed to tweak a small section of the Pharmacy Practice Act. If you remember when we um, did the legislation that was based on the reports from the Collaborative Pharmaceutical Task Force, there was a um, section for um, technician training that stated that starting at 1-1 of 2022, to become a certified technician, a technician had to complete an ACPE, ASHP accredited program, or equivalent training. Well, there has been some unfortunate um, developments as a, as a result of the pandemic. Um, before the pandemic, we had about 15 programs in the state. Now we have two. And um, technically there's three, but that one's privately held by Walgreens, so there's only two publicly available programs. But looking at ways of encouragement here, we have four new programs and possibly a fifth online program that is starting up right now and that could be accredited in the coming years. So to kind of take a look at this, we partnered with ICHP to um, put a tweak into the bill and had a discussion with the department, and we came to an agreement to move that 2022 date to start to 2024. And so that gives us a little bit more time to reevaluate um, this type of um, program initiative because this requirement, um, at least currently, um, will be required by PTCB for those um, technicians who utilize PTCB. And, and NHA may, may look at a similar requirement for taking of their exams. So we want to make sure as we continue our overall advocacy stance of trying to enhance the training of technicians and, and priority, prioritizing their education as we make stronger technicians because we're only as strong as our support staff and we need to make sure that our technicians are continuing to have the best education and training to be able to best assist us in the delivery of patient care. Now is this at all going to affect those technicians that were grandfathered in prior to the certification requirements? That's a great question and no just like all the other enhancements that we've done for certified technicians um, since 2007 those who've been grandfathered in prior to that this would not impact them this would only be for new applicants for certified pharmacy technician. 
I know a lot of technicians that have heard about this have, have wondered about this, and, and, and they're very concerned with having to roll back. You know, the, the ones who were grandfathered in, they're kind of like sitting on a sheet of ice thinking, someday somebody is going to make a rule that I'm going to have to go back and take this test, even though I've worked without the certification for so many years. Uh, that veteran status should stand for something, and, you know, no matter how much you reassure them, they're still worried that someday that's going to happen. There may be a day eventually where we will remove that section out of the act, but there there would be no movement of doing that as any of the active um, grandfather technicians are continuing to practice. Very similarly to how we didn't remove any language for apprentice pharmacists out of the act until um, they had retired from practice. Um, going forward, we had some interesting language come in in the, the beyond 11th hour of the spring session um, that was put into the budget implementation package or the BIMP. And there, you know, when it comes to the budget, people don't think that we're, we're, there's language that impacts the Pharmacy Practice Act. Just like with any other piece of legislation, sometimes um, items can be put into a um, an omnibus or a, a, a compilation bill, and the BIMP does allow for opportunities for non-budgeted items to sometimes appear, and that's what happened with this language that was um, put in, and this was supported um, on an effort by um, various pharmacy stakeholders, including IPHA. Um, this did lower for the Pharmacy Practice Act lower the age that pharmacists can immunize patients um, from 14 down to 7. And so from going forward, because this has now been signed in, it is effective um, as of August, uh, the Pharmacy Practice Act is now 7 years and up for all vaccines. We no longer have this um, tiered approach between 14-year-olds and the 10 to 13s only being able to do influenza and Tdap. Now it's 7-year-olds, Everything, all vaccines are are available for that population. Now, this is still as a reminder, as we're continuing to be in the public health emergency for the pandemic, that that age is still down to three years of age, and that is by the HHS amendments, um, uh, particularly um, Third Amendment. And one thing that we haven't discussed very often, um, not only just here, but in other places, is that currently the public health emergency is extended until the fall of 2024. So all of these amendments and expansions that the federal government has provided and given um, the the ability for pharmacy to have, and that includes your right to prescribe COVID tests and COVID vaccines and all childhood vaccines and therapeutic options as well, uh, including monoclonal antibodies. These rights of being able to order and administer continue for the, the, um, the, the coming months and now actually the coming years, unless there is a recension of these orders. But um, just as an example, some of the public health emergency orders, once they're placed in, they continue to go. Well, there is some orders like expansions of uh, naloxone authority from the federal government that have been in as a opioid epidemic public health emergency declaration that preceded the pandemic. So just to kind of remind people that these expansions are here to stay for the time being, and I encourage you to continue to utilize them in the best way to help your communities and your patients. And one thing to remember is when we are given these opportunities, and 
And trust me, this is an opportunity for pharmacists to take advantage of right now. They are opening a door for us to walk through. But here's the thing. If we don't take advantage of these opportunities, if we don't use them, they will go away. If we don't say, hey, giving me the opportunity to use my license to prescribe and dispense a vaccine, to put my name on that label, to put my name on that order, helps the patient streamline and give patient care. If we don't utilize that opportunity, then we can't go back afterwards and say, hey, we need this to stay because if we didn't use it, they, they won't need to give it back to us, right? So, so when we have these opportunities afforded to us, we need to take the opportunity to use them and utilize them often. Uh, particularly in, in my clinic practice, I have stopped using my collaborative practice agreement for vaccines. I use my name for the sole purpose of when this is all said and done and over. And if they try to rescind these opportunities that they have given us, I can say, look, I used it. It helped. My patients were, were better served and treated because of this opportunity that you have given us, please don't take it take it away from us, or please make it permanent. So, so please take that from us and and utilize those things that we are we have been gifted. You're exactly right, Ben, and I'm glad to see how many pharmacists have embraced um, these expansions and opportunities for us to assist our community. Pharmacists throughout this pandemic have stepped well above and beyond um, m- many of our um, healthcare uh, provider. Um, colleagues in in servicing our communities and really thinking outside the box to ensure continuity of care, and we can't um, we, we I can't thank you enough for being able to continue to help as we continue to battle um, COVID nineteen and its various variants. Finally, the last bill that I want to highlight um, for the spring session was House Bill one thirty five. House Bill 135 was our hormonal contraceptive advancement bill. And this is one that IPHA has been working on for a number of years now, almost four and a half years. And this bill did get all the way across the line in both chambers. And I'm happy to say that the governor did sign it in late July. And um, this would allow for pharmacists to be able to perform assessment and consultation for hormonal contraception. Now, granted, we have to use a standing order in this arrangement, um, unlike what we were just previously talking about. But this does recognize pharmacists as providers. So if you remember when we've talked about provider status in the past, provider status is three major components. One is designation. We've had that since 2000. Two is expansion of scope. And three is remuneration for services. And that's what the House Bill 135 does. It helps um, expand our scope of practice so that we can assess and provide consultation to um, women who are needing um, access to contraception um, in, in the state of Illinois. And we can actually be able to get remunerated for the provision of our patient care services. That is very, very important because many states have gone through and had to go through a couple different ways of getting the right to be able to do this and then get a right to be able to get paid. And so we've been able to put all that together. So starting in January 1st of 2022, you'll be able to provide this um, basically be on a cash basis for a while. Medicaid has already started the steps of trying to pull together what the road to um, Medicaid providership will be for pharmacists. Um, They're working on it right now for monoclonal antibodies. And so we'll be working out with those individual uh, sites um, to kind of 
determine the bumps in the road as we start to get the road cleared out for everyone uh, to be able to sign up for provider status um, through Illinois Medicaid starting in the first, hopefully the first months of the year. For commercial insurance, um, we're also having those conversations now for um, provision of monoclonal antibodies. And some of you have been already working on it for COVID testing with medical um, insurance providers. But we have until 1-1 of 23. And if we can get some of them up beforehand, that'd be wonderful um, to be able to get that pathway as clear as well. So this is something that we've been working on in some version for over well over two decades. And I'm really glad to see that at least we've got our foot and a foundation established um, with contraception to be able to help expand access for women's health in Illinois. And here we are talking about yet another door, another opportunity that's been opened for us that give patient access, more access to care. Isn't it amazing to see where we have come from and where we are headed? And we are right here in the middle, right in the thick of it, that, that we are watching these doors being opened right in front of us. Uh you know, it's it's something to relish that we're going to be having patients come in to see a pharmacist, a pharmacist for contraceptive care from the start to the finish of the therapy. That They, they don't have to go make an appointment with their OB that in the crisis of COVID was backed up months from being able to see patients, you know. They can come to the pharmacist, the most accessible healthcare practitioner there is. So we are opening these doors and slamming through them as pharmacists, as a profession. And it's just amazing to watch. I just want to make go back one point here about the state budget. Um, the, the 2022 fiscal year budget does include an additional $10 million for the Critical Pharmacy Access Fund. Woo! And I just want to make sure that if you are not taking advantage of that, please make sure that you are signing up, contact um, HFS and fill out the form. The worst they can tell you is you don't qualify. But probably even worse than that is you're leaving money that's actually yours on the table. Can you imagine being a rural pharmacist who is struggling to make ends meet at the end of the month, can't pay your pharmacy supplier bill, your wholesalers, all of the people that, that you owe money to, you're not getting money in from, from your reimbursements because it's just such a tough time right now, and the state is offering to give you money and you just didn't sign up for it? If you have not done this, if you have not taken advantage of the critical access fund and you are kind of confused on what it is, how to do it, how to sign up, whatever, call me, call the office, call anybody. There are so many pharmacists out there that have been doing this that you are bound to know someone who can help step you through the very, very simple process of claiming your cash. Seriously, claim your cash. It is money that is owed to you. You just have to stand up and say, I want my money now. I completely agree. And I think, you know, the, the what the CAP fund has been able to do is we have many pharmacies that, as been stated, you know, have been able to be keep sustainable um, through these recent years as we continue to work with HFS and lawmakers to help continue to reform the program and to show that we need to be better supporting um, pharmacies in the delivery of um, patient care for HFS recipients. So I want to go back to something you kind of started this the session with, and, and that was talking about 
the fact that we didn't get a lot of things accomplished that we wanted to, but because of the COVID situation and, and doing things differently, it afforded some different opportunities for us. And one of those things I really want to touch on is the fact that because of these virtual committee hearings and because of some of the outside political pressures that were were being put upon these bills that we wanted to hear, specifically our, our, our PBM bill, we had multiple hearings, whereas before we probably only would have had one. So this is an interesting thing, because if you really think about it, if we would have had one hearing, Typically what happens is we show up, they say you have X number of minutes to present your case, you have two or three people that can talk, and boom, shut the door, you're out, and that's all we get to do. They make a, a, a vote, and then it either goes or it doesn't, and then that's really all we get. I mean, it's it's like bottom of the ninth when you walk in the door. There's, there's no lead up, there's no dramatic middle of the game, it's like do or die time. This year was different because we had our initial hearing committee hearing where they said, you know, you get a few people and, you know, you're going to get an X number of amount of time to speak, which started at like two minutes, went to one minute. And then he came on and said, Hey, guess what? You got like 30 seconds. So my three page document got down to like a paragraph, which is another story. But the cool thing is we got a second hearing. And at that second hearing, we got to invite new people. So we got new voices to be heard. And then there was a third hearing, and we got new voices to be heard. So we got to bring all these people in that otherwise would not have been at the table. Uh, we have all all these resources of people that can provide testimony and, and, and information and data for these committee hearings to take place that we typically don't have the chance to provide. This year was different because of these Odd in, in odd situations that happened, we were able to bring these people, as you said, Vicki Cunningham, Scott Pace, all, the NCPA showed up to the table. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we even had someone from past talking about audits ready to go, and it's we had a lot of of people that were in our corner, and 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 I want to say thank you to them for one thing for being there to support our our process. Um, but it's just an interesting concept to think of how there's a silver lining in such a negative situation. Um, It may not have come to fruition, but it's neat that we had these opportunities given to us that otherwise we would not have had. So with that, moving along, um, time is is an interesting thing because, you know, when I started practicing pharmacy and and, uh, became licensed, we used the old school DEA form 222s to order a uh, narcotic, a, a C2 from our wholesaler. We'd sign the thing, handwrite it, send it with our delivery driver. Next day, we'd get back our order. Uh, then came the advent of CSOS, and the DEA gave us an electronic means of ordering our C2s. And, and what a, a great thing that is, but we always still needed that backup version of how to order if, in case CSOS was down. If we were ordering from someone who, who does not use CSOS, for instance, if you've got multiple stores or if you've got a friend down the road that's offering to lend you something, you know, you got to use a 222 form to transfer those C2s back and forth. Well, uh, they came out with a new form. There's a single page DEA form to order your, your C2s. And lo and behold, we've got another change coming. 
What do you think, Garth? Well, it's interesting. The DEA has decided that the time of the triplicate is is no more. And so on October 30th of this year, um, that'll be the last day that you can use a 222 triplicate form. And you will have to use either CSOS or you'll have to use a DEA single form 222 going forward. Now, the DEA has not, at least in their announcement, um, did not make it mandatory for any outstanding unused um, triplicate forms to be returned, but they did make it a suggestion. So it would be our recommendation if you still have any outstanding unused 222 triplicate forms that you do go ahead and send them back to the DEA um, and we'll, pa- we'll, we'll send more information here on how to be able to send that back to them. Um, but we do recommend just so that way you're, you're compliant with, with their recommendations. Well, it's kind of like you can look at it this way. If they gave you an option to do something and you're not really sure if you should or not, you can either do it and make them happy or you can not do it and take the chance that you got something wrong and then be in trouble for not doing the thing they suggested you do. So I agree. Let's go ahead and send those back if you've still got some. Okay, so moving along. We have a pharmacist workplace and well-being reporting portal. If you remember several episodes ago, we had a episode based on uh, workplace and well-being and, and talking about uh, a whole bunch of different things as far as making uh, a workplace a safe in, in a safe environment for both the pharmacist, the pharmacy staff, and the patients. It's, it's very important that pharmacists are not, one, taken advantage of by their employers or being harassed by, by the, the, the company that they might work for. Um, but another thing is making sure that patients are well taken care of, that we are not putting our staff in unsafe situations, that our patients are not getting the care that they deserve. There is now a tool that we have to allow pharmacists and staff, I believe it's staff as well, not just pharmacists, that they can now report uh, on their workplace environment and make sure that it is what it should be. So Garth, tell me more. Tell me more about this awesome tool. So as you will recall, as Ben stated, we have talked about well-being as a as a issue confronting pharmacy now for a number of years. And there was the 2019 Pharmacy Consensus Conference on well-being and resilience. And part of that there remember there were 50 recommendations for the profession to consider to take a look at this and one of those was trying to gather more data. Well, the American Pharmacists Association, or APHA, and the National Alliance of State Pharmacy Associations, or NASPA, decided to work together to try to continue um, our work and advocacy on this issue. And there's come up two different um, phases of where what we've been able to accomplish over the last um, two years, especially with the pandemic, in addition to um, other issues that we've been addressing. And at the beginning of the year, the Pharmacist's Rights and Responsibilities document came out. And it's, think of it as an extension to the Code of Ethics and how we um, feel a safe workplace and your responsibilities to be able to voice your concerns um, of your work conditions. And so this was a start of, of, of what we felt was an extension of the consensus statements that were developed in 2019 
and looking at a way of trying to codify and be able to provide pharmacists with a documented uh, foundation um, to be able to stand up for themselves if they are in a workplace environment that they feel may not be as safe as it could be. In addition to that, um, APHA and NASPA working with the Alliance for Patient Medication Safety, which is a uh, federally recognized patient safety organization or PSO, have developed the Pharmacist Workplace and Wellbeing Reporting Portal. And this is now active and has been stated. Um, anyone that's a pharmacy personnel can fill out the, the, um, the questionnaire. And it's not a quick questionnaire. I'll let you know that to come up with because we want as much data about the situation as possible. We want positive as well as any negative um, uh, workplace scenarios as well because what we're wanting um, best practices to be able to come out of the, 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 da- the aggregate data uh, of this report. Now, I can guarantee you with this being a patient safety organization housed um, um, report, your data is protected and it's confidential. It's actually, you can't even get access to it by a subpoena. So you don't have to worry about your employer finding out who you are. Um, the way the questionnaire is set up, it keeps it as anonymous as possible. And um, there have been many researchers who helped with designing of the questionnaire to help ensure that we provide, um, you, you keep your information as confident as possible and as anonymous as possible. And so I highly recommend that you utilize this tool because for us to continue to do good work in this area, we need your examples. And the data that you will provide will help us with creating the solutions for the workplaces of tomorrow. So to those independent owners out there who have traditionally looked at these tools and thought that this was just a chain thing and you don't want your data out there, you don't want to be negatively viewed, this is important for you to answer as well. We need all workplaces. We need independence. We need chains. We need hospital. We need all the different silos out there to come together and do this together because we need help identifying where the issues lie. And without the independent data, which I can tell you right now, there's going to be a lot of independents out there that don't think that they they should or want to do this. And you need to. I'm begging you, please do this because we need that data to show what's really going on. We know what's happening in our own pharmacies, but they don't. And we need data like this to help prove our case every step down the way. So please, please give this to your employees Answer it yourself as the owner. Everyone in the pharmacy needs to answer this, this, this tool to help us aggregate this data to know what we can do to make our profession better, our workplace better, and our patients and communities safer. And speaking of those drivers of workplace animosity and what's going on, and whether you're independent or not, we all know that one of the biggest drivers of these issues, not the only, one of the biggest is the PBM problem, right? We can all agree on that, that it is a huge issue on every level of the game now. It has a trickle-down effect on everyone. So 
with that being said, we've got some good news lately. We're seeing some some movement here in, in the PBM world, and we're getting some settlements and some legal cases happening. So we've had a big one recently with Centene. Garth, tell me about that. Well, Centene, as you know, has had a um, disruptive year over the last couple of months. Um, w- and basically, they're having a lot of the curtains pulled back and showing who they really are. And they have actually made settlements with four states total, um, Ohio, Mississippi, and depending on who got to the races first with their press conference, their press release, Arkansas, and now Illinois. And so um, at the end of, la- end of September, um, Attorney General Kwame Raoul was able to announce a almost $57 million settlement with Centene. And he says it helps resolve an investigation the Attorney General's office was conducting into whether, as a pharmacy benefit manager for the state of Illinois, Centene um, entities submitted inaccurate billing requests to the states. Further, he goes on to say that as he, the investigation as is conducted by his office determined that Centene allegedly submitted inaccurate pharmaceutical reimbursement requests that failed to accurately disclose the cost of pharmacy services. In addition, requests for reimbursements did not disclose available pharmaceutical discounts and improperly inflated dispensing fees. Can you say rebates in there? I I think that's a really interesting way to word rebates. And I think the greatest way to look at this is supposedly community pharmacies continue to be the bad guy here. I think, if anything, this settlement turns that argument into into dust, because we 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 haven't set aside one billion dollars for future settlements, but Centene has, knowing that they would need it. Right, that's the important thing. They know that they are going to have these settlements come down on them in the future. So why not prepare for it now? Why not overcharge someone by a billion dollars so that they have that money to set aside in a nice little safety fund for when the rainy day comes, you know? But here's the worst part. That money was yours to begin with. It's improperly been used. And ultimately, it was from the taxpayers. And that's what I hope the states and hopefully eventually the federal government realize. There is a significant problem with the continued allowance of pharmacy benefit managers to continue to operate in this way. And I think the continued ability for Centene to be able to operate in the state of Illinois, even after such a settlement, is egregious. Because if a pharmacy had done anything on anywhere near this level of fraud and abuse to the state of Illinois, they would no longer have a license. But I do want to end this discussion um, quickly with just um, ending it with a quote from the Attorney General because it does not sound like he's done. Um, He states here, pharmacy benefit managers are part of a larger issue, which is the accessibility and affordability of prescription drugs. No one should have to choose between paying for basic necessities or costly but essential medications, My office is continuing to investigate pharmacy benefit managers operating in Illinois because I am committed to stopping unfair and unlawful conducts by PBMs and drug companies. Well, one thing we know for sure, the longer he spends investigating, the more dirt he will uncover because there's plenty there. You just have to start peeling back the layers until you find the real issues at hand. 
Now, they've done a really good job of hiding it so far, but we're going to get there. I hope it's sooner rather than later. So with that, talking about PBM issues and keeping our doors open and fighting the good fight for independent pharmacy, I'd like to ask all of you, as I always do, for advocacy fund money. We need your help. We are fighting this battle for you. We are fighting this battle for all of you. I am not just talking to the independent pharmacy owners out there. If you think that your chain pharmacy staff position that we just got done talking about workplace safety, well-being, advocacy for you in that place also comes from the fight from the PBMs and making the pharmacy world more fair for everyone involved. So we need help from everyone to fight that good fight. So please, reach down deep into your pockets and give today to the Advocacy Fund. You can find the Advocacy tab on our website, IPHA.org. You can call the office and ask them uh, to make a direct donation that way. Uh, We'll take anonymous money. We'll take any money, any way we can get it. So whatever you can do today to help would be very advantageous for all of us in the future. Lastly, let's talk about conference. Uh, We've got conference coming up next week. By the time you all hear this, I'm not quite sure I'm fast enough to get this out before conference. So it's probably going to be after conference is over before I have time to uh, edit this podcast. So what do we have going on for conference? What's on tap? We have on deck our first live event since our annual meeting of 2019. And um, we're looking forward to finally being back in person. We're glad to be joined by our colleagues from the Missouri Pharmacy Association. And um, again, the dates are October 21st through the 24th. We'll be at the Hilton at the ballpark in St. Louis. And we're, we're glad to see the response. We're um, well above where we usually are for registrations, even prior to a conference. So I'm excited to see the number of people down uh, for the weekend to engage um, in networking and educational programs. We have um, adjusted the schedules a little bit to be a little bit lighter for everyone um, because we know that there is an adjustment to being back in in-person events again. And we want to make sure that everyone has an enjoyable time. And we've got a great um, slate of um, uh, continuing education programs. And we're glad to have uh, Scott Pace, who we mentioned earlier, who will be our Friday keynote. And um, we encourage everyone, if if you still think you want to come, um, get a room and register at IPHA.org and we'll be glad to see you. Yeah, hope I, I was really hopeful that we could squeeze in a postseason Cardinals game during that weekend, but uh, you know, the tables have turned. It, it didn't go their way. Uh, but nonetheless, that means there's more rooms at the hotels, so there's plenty of room for you. So come one, come all. Uh, I'm excited to see all of you there, and it's going to be enjoyable seeing faces, being able to welcome people with big arms but socially distanced. Uh it, it's it's going to be a great time, so I'm, I'm excited for it. Well, I think we have covered all of our bases. Garth, what do you think? I think so. Okay, so let's wrap it up here. Thank you to our listeners for supporting this show. Check back regularly to hear new episodes as we will keep you updated on legislative matters happening around the state. You can find us on the internet at IPHA.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as IL Pharmacists. That's plural with the S, I-L Pharmacists. 
Follow us today to stay in the know. That will do it for this installment of Illinois Farm Talk. Stay tuned for our next chapter as the Voice for Pharmacy in Illinois brings you another edition of Illinois Farm Talk. Thank you for listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I want to let you know just how important it is to hold a membership in the Illinois Pharmacists Association. The Illinois Pharmacists Association stands up for all pharmacists across the state, from community to health system, academia to long-term care. Your membership will strengthen the efforts of the entire association. Consider joining today to gain valuable insights and updates about news and events affecting the profession of pharmacy in the state of Illinois. To gain educational opportunities such as CPEs and certificate training programs, or to help advocate to protect the abilities of pharmacists to practice in the best way they possibly can. Stand up for your profession, stand up for your state, and stand up for your patients. Join today. Call the office today or log on to IPHA.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IL Pharmacist. That's plural with the S, IL Pharmacists.